Welcome everyone to another episode of Natural Philosophers, the show in which I talk to some of the leading natural philosophers of the day about some fascinating topic that they've been working on. I'm your host, Dr. Siddharth Madhukrishnan. My guest today is Professor Alastair Wilson. Al is a professor of philosophy at the University of Birmingham, where he works on metaphysics and the philosophy of physics. Today, I'll be talking to him about his new book, The Nature of Contingency, Quantum Physics as Modal Realism, where he defends roughly the view that the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics provides us with a new metaphysics of modality. It's a wonderful book written with clarity and rigor, and it offers powerful ways of reconceptualizing and dissolving away issues that arise when we are thinking about the many worlds interpretation. Welcome, Al. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for that generous introduction. So let's start with a few questions about metaphysics broadly construed before we get to your book itself. Uh, my original training was in physics, and I moved to philosophy. And when I moved to philosophy and I said that I was interested in metaphysics to some of my friends in physics, and they had this reaction of what on earth is metaphysics and isn't, and if I tell them something like metaphysics is interested in questions like the nature of reality, the nature of space and time, uh, the nature of causation and things like that, they tended to have the reaction, well, isn't that just physics or computer science or things like that? So how would you think about the subject matter of metaphysics as distinct from different disciplines? Well, yeah, nobody agrees uh, about exactly what metaphysics is. Uh, the name doesn't, I think, help very much because the natural thing people think of when they hear the term metaphysics, apart from kind of connections with crystals and, and, and the new age, which is, is what you'll find if you go into a bookstore and look for metaphysics. Um, in academic philosophy, metaphysics, the term makes it sound as though it's kind of physics removed to the meta level. So it's like one step more uh, foundational than physics. Uh, and you might compare like logic and metalogic, uh, where metalogic is broadly speaking kind of logic about logic. And, um, and so it, there is a sense for a lot of people that metalogic is more foundational than logic. And in the same way people might expect metaphysics to be more foundational than physics, a lot of people that do metaphysics do think they're doing something kind of deep and more profound, more important than physics. They're doing something like building a foundation for any possible physics. Uh, so this is what uh, people often call themselves Aristotelians and the Aristotelians like to think about metaphysics. They think of it as kind of first philosophy. And so what they're doing is in a sense deeper, more profound and more important than what physicists are doing. Um, even if the physicist can make good predictions and build impressive machines, somehow the, the philosophers are doing something that is, 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 is more important. And I, I don't buy that kind of attitude at all. Um, I think metaphysics is different from physics in terms of being more abstract and more general. Uh, and so the questions are, are different questions, but they're not uh, more foundational questions, either in... Uh, a metaphysical or epistemological sense. And we're certain, certainly not in the epistemological sense, we're not more certain of metaphysics than we are of physics. And the way I look at it is actually quite the other way around. Physics is our, is our great solid anchor in these areas 
of the kind of very abstract. Uh, because physics has proven itself through uh, experiments and through technologies, uh, it's the obvious epistemic starting point here. And so I see the job of metaphysics as being kind of to make sense of how physics can be possible. Um, so there's certainly no sense in which uh, metaphysics is uh, to be done first. I would think philosophy, uh, physics is to be done first, looked at, and then understood and interpreted. Uh, and when you understand metaphysics like that, there isn't a sharp boundary between metaphysics and physics. Uh, in fact, I like to think of them as overlapping, like to a large extent. There are questions which are clearly just physics, kind of uh, details of the uh, like acoustics within a like highly stressed material or something. And then there are things which are clearly metaphysics, kind of question about the, um, uh, well, numbers, uh, for example, the nature of the reality of numbers. Um, and then there are questions that are in the borderland that I think are correctly counted as both physical and metaphysical questions, such as what are alternative possibilities? That's the the metaphysical question, which is a subject of the book. But as I argue, it can be answered using physics. So in that sense, it's a question that is that is within the intersection of metaphysics and physics. And so, yeah, metaphysics of physics, which is the kind of thing I like to think I do, um, is, is not trying to give some a priori foundation for physics. It's trying to fill out the physics into a full, complete, consistent story and to do that in the best way we possibly can. And to do that, it needs to be uh, cognizant of and also appropriately deferential to the physics because the physics is making these amazing predictions, building these amazing technologies. Metaphysics has done nothing of the sort for us. Metaphysics, nobody has, has uh, invented some technology that has made life easier using, using the theories of metaphysics or at least uh, it would be pretty contentious to say that we have. So um, th there's a lot more to say about this, uh, but I, the kind of thing I do, I call naturalistic metaphysics. This is a term that other people have used. And broadly speaking, it means metaphysics that takes natural science as the appropriate kind of starting point and as something to be deferred to in appropriate ways. Uh, so this way of conceptualizing metaphysics, which you prefer, avoids a line of criticism that's quite often leveled against metaphysics, which is that it makes heavy use of intuition or assumes a kind of a priori access to the structure of the world. Do you think that this line of criticism is largely valid outside of naturalized metaphysics? Well, I have, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this because uh, I, one thing a lot of people have said for decades and still say is that um, uh, metaphysics is nonsense uh, and the metaphysics that's done from the armchair is, is nonsense. And I don't believe that. Um, I think it's very hard to substantiate claims of nonsensicality people might say that these things are not worth pursuing or that their answers are kind of trivial 
or um, in some other way the pursuit of them is, is misguided. Um, but I just tend to think that these are perfectly good questions for which the uh, people are often using the wrong methods. So I, I do think uh, conceivability, in particular intuitions of uh, the possibility of something that go along the lines of what, imagining something, judging it to be a kind of coherent thing to imagine, and then inferring that it's possible. That particular uh, inferential step leading you to the claim that such and such a thing is metaphysically possible, as it's often said, uh, is used heavily in metaphysics. And insofar as that's an a priori uh, inference, I, uh, I reject it. And the book provides, amongst other things, a naturalistic replacement for the method of judging possibility using a priori conceiving. Instead, I think we should just kind of apply science directly to assess possibility claims insofar as we can. Doesn't mean we'll always be able to do that. But uh, so there's a certain sense in which my book debunks the kind of method which is, is prevalent, I think, in analytic metaphysics. Uh, just one, one example, which uh, I, I expect many of your listeners are familiar with, uh, the argument from zombies for uh, non-physicalist views of consciousness. Uh, people like David Chalmers most prominently have argued that because zombies are conceivable, therefore they're metaphysically possible. And if they're metaphysically possible, there can't be a constitutive connection between matter and consciousness. Uh, and I just reject that argument at the first step. The fact that uh, zombies are conceivable doesn't mean that they're metaphysically possible and it doesn't mean we need to take account of their metaphysical possibility in building our best total theory of the world. Um, so I think this view can actually uh, be used to shore up a lot of plausible um, positions against like overly zealous a priori arguments uh, from philosophers. And in the aspect of a priori knowledge, some people try to justify the methodology of metaphysics by saying that we already have a very successful a priori enterprise, which is mathematics. And if mathematics is allowed to sort of go along its merry way without being subjected to severe criticism for claims of knowledge, why should metaphysics also be not allowed that same latitude? Do you agree with this way of thinking about metaphysics as a kind of mathematical knowledge? Yeah, I, do, I don't agree, though I acknowledge the power of that line of thought. Um, uh, in his, we'll talk later, I think, about David Lewis and his modal realism. But Lewis was uh, kind of intensely impressed by the power of mathematics as something, the kind of uh, achievements of which it would be absurd to deny in a way that philosophy can't uh, produce any comparable achievements that it would be absurd to deny. Um, uh, and I, so I, I, I share that attitude that there's something enormously impressive about mathematics as an apparent enterprise, but I still think the jury is out on how exactly to understand what it is that mathematics is doing and how it works uh, 
and what it is discovering. My own preference, though it's a, a tentative one, is towards a form of uh, Pythagoreanism, which makes, uh, which brings mathematics and concrete reality together. Whether you want to say reality is mathematical or mathematics is kind of encoded into reality is maybe a matter of, of preference. But I think uh, so that, that, that's, that's a, a bigger view than I, I have ever defended or, or can defend here. Um, but I think it is one of very few candidate answers to one of the deepest questions of metaphysics, which is the making sense of the applicability of mathematics to the natural world. Uh, and it's not just uh, the stupendous achievements of particle physics uh, that give rise to a problem of applicability of mathematics, though it is particularly striking there. Um, I think even like you know, geometry of patterns in the natural world already gives rise to um, some deep questions about applicability of mathematics, uh, which most most philosophers I don't think really have an adequate answer to. I think it's kind of an, an, a, a, a gigantic unsolved philosophical problem that uh, people have ignored because it's just too hard. And some heroic philosophers have wrestled with it and some still do. Um, so I think, the, as I say, I think the jury is out on how to understand the achievements of mathematics. But uh, my, my own preference is for a view uh, which makes mathematical knowledge not ultimately of a kind so distinct from metaphysical and physical knowledge, the structure of the world extremely broadly construed. So let's turn to your book. Since we already had a bit of a conversation about methodology, and one of the things that I like about your book is that it sets out pretty clearly the methodological principles that you will follow. And uh, you, together, the principles that you will follow, you call it a Quinean methodology. So, and you have various principles under that methodology, you know, sort of complicated sounding names like interpretational metasemantics, confirmational holism, physics, metaphysics, evidential asymmetry. So I know it's probably hard for you to summarize these deep ideas very quickly, but perhaps can you give us a broad feeling for what the methodology here is? Yeah, uh, so I say it's Quinean um, because it is a kind of holist epistemology which uh, is often associated with Quine, and it's also a naturalist epistemology which sees no sharp divide between the questions of philosophy and the questions of science. So broadly speaking, the holist element of that is um, confirmational holism here, <coughs> is the idea that we should evaluate theories at as global a level as we can, taking as all the considerations into account uh, collectively, rather than evaluating different elements of theory in isolation, um, because everything is in principle evidentially linked to everything else. That's the kind of guiding idea. Um, 
one shouldn't assign kind of credence zero to the uh, something in one area turning out to bear in an unexpected way, even if only indirectly, even if only conditional on some obscure hypothesis on something else very far away. So you should in principle be open to the idea that everything could in principle bear on everything else. Uh, and that means, as Quine would put it, that it's only a, like a total system of the world that you can compare against another total system of the world ultimately. And everything else we do inferentially is kind of a shortcut to that. That's the kind of ideal thing. If we were ideal reasoners, we would like kind of gather all the facts um, and we would sit down and try to work out what the best total theory was. Um, and uh, so that, that's confirmational holism. Interpretational metasemantics says that if we were, if we did that, if we were the ideal reasoners, we gathered all the facts, we sat down and considered what the best theory was, um, there wouldn't be anything more to the theory we settled on being true than it being the one that we would in that situation settle upon. Uh, this is the kind of hardest one to explain. What it kind of rules out is the possibility of kind of radical error, even uh, in the ideal limit uh, of the kind that you would get if it just so turned out that um, your words ended up referring to something completely different from what you thought they referred to. So you tried to express your theory, but you ended up expressing nonsense or nothing true. Um, I, I'm not going to try and dwell on that. It's not my uh, forte, as, as no doubt uh, anybody listening to the last 30 seconds has, has gathered. Um, uh, the most important of these, kind of for the purpose of the book, is something I've already mentioned. The idea that uh, if there's like a direct tension between some well-confirmed piece of physics and some like firmly believed piece of metaphysics, it should be the metaphysics that gives way. If there is genuinely a tension there, physics generally has a much better evidential standing than metaphysics. <coughs> so that comes in degrees, but um, it's meant to push back against the kind of people that would say, well, our knowledge in physics is always tentative, but our knowledge of metaphysics can be a priori and certain and perfect. And so where they come into conflict, it should be the metaphysics that gives way. I take the other approach, as I've already explained. Um, if there's genuine tension between physics and metaphysics, we need to find a metaphysical workaround. Right, so broadly, your methodology is one in which you try very hard to respect exactly what the physics is saying, but at the same time, you are trying to fit together our grasp of physics with our grasp of the rest of the world in a kind of holistic way uh, in the sense you also want to take into account our knowledge of the everyday world our ordinary patterns of language use and fit them all together into one theory that sort of respects everybody it's a kind of i mean compromise sounds like a weak word and what it is is more like a best fit perhaps is that a better it's the balance okay. uh, absolutely it is it is the theory that best balances the overall theoretical virtues um that's one way to think about it so we're, we're, we're kind of looking at kind of candidates for total theories of the world 
and comparing them. I mean, like the first basic um, condition is that they should fit the empirical evidence uh, or like be fitable to the empirical evidence in some natural way. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's criteria like simplicity um, and uh, obviously like predictive accuracy. One doesn't need to have your total theory predicting every detail because some things might just be random, especially with quantum mechanics around. Uh, you shouldn't expect every single occurrent fact there is to get a, a full explanation. But you want your, your total theory to explain as much as possible as efficiently as possible. That, that's broadly the trade-off that David Lewis endorsed for, for total systems of, of law. Um, his methodology is, is broadly Quinean too, though he didn't endorse the physics-metaphysics evidential asymmetry in the way that I do. And that's why my metaphysics looked rather different from Lewis's. Wonderful. So let's talk about the main subject matter of your book, which is modality. And as you mentioned, uh, this is a topic that is often used as a key example of the kind of question that metaphysics is concerned with, that say physics is not concerned with or mathematics is not concerned with. So, and modality is, deals with concepts like actuality and possibility, necessity and contingency, or sort of more simply it's about ordinary modal language when I say, I'm doing this interview, but I could have been not doing this interview. So this ability of humans to talk about alternate possibilities and saying that also about necessities, no matter what happened, no matter what happened, this would have happened. So why is this topic so compelling and puzzling for, for philosophers? Well, it's a good question because initially these, these words, actual, possible, necessary, contingent, they don't seem hugely central. Uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're long words. Um, I do think that these notions are very, very central within metaphysics. When you start trying to theorize about various specific aspects of the world around us, uh, causation, personal identity, these, these kinds of central metaphysical topics, modality kind of keeps coming up as a core tool that people use when explaining uh, concepts. Um, so like one candidate explanation of essence people don't always like this but an, an essential property is a property that a thing has in every possibility in which it exists uh, and so that's talking that's characterizing a term like essence using possibility and and counterfactuals are, are the kind of elephant in the room here because even though we don't use the word possible all that much. We use words like could and can and would more, um, but we do use counterfactuals all the time. So a counterfactual, uh, I'm, I'm assuming most people know in this context is a, uh, a conditional of the form, if such and such had occurred, such and such other thing would have occurred. Um, and these counterfactuals are also like very 
frequently the kind of things that philosophers and theorists in other disciplines find themselves reaching for when they want to explain uh, concepts. Um, so you, know, you want to explain kind of uh, personal identity. You talk about what, what would, who would be you in some hypothetical counterfactual scenario. If you were to go into a teletransporter, who would come out? And uh, so they, they get used all the time in philosophy. But more relevantly, really, to, for the kind of uh, the, the importance of this topic is just how much we use them in everyday life. Uh, we're always talking about what we would have done differently, uh, how lucky we are that we did this, because if we hadn't, this other thing would have happened, how unfortunate we are that we, um, uh, our alarm failed to go off. Uh, if it hadn't, we'd like, surely have got, uh, uh, got to work on time for once. Um, there's so much hypothetical thinking all over our lives. Um, not just kind of inferent, kind of indicative conditional thinking of, of the form, well, if, if this is uh, uh, the question, then this is the answer. If this is the question, then that is the answer. Th that kind of simple if then thinking doesn't have a counterfactual element. It's if this had been the case, it would have been the case, which is sometimes called subjunctive uh, mood um, in grammar that seems to mark this distinctive phenomenon. And it's that distinctive phenomenon, uh, hello dog, uh, which we use all the time. And uh, it also seems to be tied to causation. Causation seems to be uh, very closely linked to what would have happened. The cause is something that makes a difference. If the cause were absent, then the effect would have been absent too. And causal thinking is obviously endemic uh, in, in our reasoning and our theorizing. And so all this adds up to like a very big cognitive theoretical role for counterfactual thinking and counterfactual thinking just is modal thinking so it's reasoning about other possibilities at least that's a first pass uh, natural way of understanding counterfactual it's about counterfactual telling us about how things would have been if things had been different that is they're telling us about how things are in alternative possibilities of particular kinds um, at least that's the core idea behind the account of counterfactuals that I like and which I talk about in uh, in the book. So, so modality is everywhere and the question is how, how can we make sense of that? And one of the most striking things philosophically is that it's really hard to make sense of. One of the things I argue in the introduction to the book is that collectively philosophers have done a really pretty terrible job of uh, accounting for modality and often of like even appreciating uh, the substance of what needs to be accounted for. Right. So the question here is, what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about counterfactuals and possibilities? And ordinarily, if I'm, ordinary language seems pretty straightforward. If I, if I'm, if I say my coffee cup, I'm talking about this. So I have sort of a idea of what kinds of things I'm talking about in ordinary language. But when we're talking about possibilities, alternate possibilities or counterfactuals, then it seems as if there's nothing really in the world that we can point to, well, at least until your thesis comes to the table, 
there seems to be nothing in the world that we can point to and say that, well, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about possibility. And this is why, if I understand correctly, this is why this is a topic for metaphysics rather than just say psychology, right? Because psychologists might say, okay, how do humans actually do counterfactual thinking and use this language? But the question isn't how we do that, but the question is really, what is it that is the subject matter of that conversation, right? And absolutely, uh, that's a good summary. But along alongside that question is the the kind of functional question of what I mean. That question has to be answered in a way which makes sense of why we use this language so extensively. So we don't need to just kind of come up with some stuff that we could be talking about when we um, use counterfactuals and use modal language. We need to make sense of uh, how we would benefit from talking about those things and why we have such an extensive practice of doing that and that I think this kind of question of the function of modal language um, is has been really heavily under uh, underappreciated and most of the theories of what modality is the different theories of possible worlds and so on uh, do a pretty bad job of uh, making sense of why we would care about modality um, that's really a big challenge. They also do a bad job of making sense of how we know facts about modality. Um, so if facts about modality are facts about these primitive abstract objects, some say, or a fact about these kind of concrete universes physically completely cut off from our own, again, very unclear how we could know about these things or why we would care about them enough to talk about them all the time. Uh, so there's a big challenge here, not just to come up with a view which kind of gets the truth values of our modal claims right, but a, a view which gets them right in a way that makes sense of why we, do, why we use them. And in, in many ways, the best theory on the table is, uh, apart from the view that I like, I think, is um, a kind of uh, essentialist view, a dispositionalist kind of view, which says that things uh, have their causal powers essentially. And so it kind of flows from the nature of things that they can and can't behave in certain ways. And that view, I think, does better than many of the other ones on the table. And I, I don't uh, give it a, an extended discussion in my book, which I, I regret. But even then, it, that view, those views don't feel explanatory at all to me. Um, it feels like uh, we're being asked, kind of, why can this thing do these things and not the others? Well, just in the essence of this, to be able to do these things and not the others, it doesn't really get us very far. Whereas what I'm trying to do is to link the answers to these questions to other theories which are well-confirmed theories in their own right. And that's where quantum mechanics comes in. Right. Yeah. So with an essentialist theory, I would say if someone asked me, why is it the case that had I struck a matchstick, it would light up? And I just said, well, it's the essence of a matchstick that it has that property that upon striking it tends to light up. In, in other the words, first, it's flammable. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That would be quite unsatisfactory as an explanation. I would have just sort of restated the yeah. claim. So right. 
So that, that, that gets called a, a kind of dormative virtue objection. Um, uh, uh, after the, the old idea that um, it's a non-explanation to say that opium sends you to sleep because it has a dormative virtue. Where what is a dormative virtue? Well, it's the power to send something to somebody to sleep. Feels like you've given a, an explanation which is so limited, it's almost circular. It maybe says one thing, which is that there is a, like an intrinsic property of the opium that sends you to sleep. Maybe the dispositionalists say this one thing, there are properties that are like intrinsic to you and me that give rise to our, the necessities and possibilities that we have. But until you say something more, that's not a, that's not a satisfactory theory, I think. You haven't said what it is or how it works. And in quantum theory, what I take it is that we have a mathematically precise theory of modality. I said that I thought uh, some theories, some claims could be both physics and metaphysics. And I take it that uh, like the physics of quantum theory just is continuous with the metaphysics of modality. What quantum theory is telling us when it assigns probabilities to different possible outcomes of some physical process is it's telling us about what the genuine possibilities are and it's telling us more than traditional modal physics modal metaphysics ever told us about what the possibilities are because it's assigning a probability distribution over them and so the kind of modal metaphysics which you get out of quantum mechanics is both kind of more physically grounded than the kind that you get out of a priori conceiving but it's also just richer and more powerful because it has a probability measure over it. And so you can do things with it. In particular, you can account for how, how we know things about it and uh, for its rational role in our lives by linking up with the role of chance in our lives and the role of uh, experimental statistics in, in assessing chances. Uh, so it's really that probability distribution which kind of comes with the worlds, the possible worlds of my version of quantum theory uh, that isn't there in the possible world of traditional modal metaphysics. And that is what kind of breaks the deadlock and allows certain explanations to be given by my account that couldn't be given by previous theories. Right, okay, great. So since you've been dancing around this and you give a nice statement of the, some of the ideas of your thesis, Perhaps maybe you could just say a little bit more about your thesis, which you call quantum modal realism. And you see it as a kind of combination of the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics, or also called Everettian quantum mechanics after Hugh Everett, who first proposed that idea. And also what gets called modal realism, which was a, which is a thesis by David Lewis. So, we're going to take the two theories, uh, especially quantum mechanics in more detail at the following questions, but perhaps you can just sort of briefly summarize uh, to situate the discussion, the thesis that you're defending. Sure. Uh, so quantum modal realism is a theory about what modality amounts to, what it consists in, what it is as a phenomenon. 
And really the kind of the core phenomenon I take to need explaining is contingency. Uh, the, uh, the phenomenon that some things are some way, but could have been some other way. Uh, so I'm not, in, I'm not in the first part interested in explaining necessity, why, why some things couldn't have been any other way, which is normally what philosophers try to explain. Um, I'm focusing on the, the mystery of contingency, the, the fact that for some things in the world, they could have gone differently. Like, what, what, what does that amount to? And the core claim is that contingency is variation across different worlds in the Everettian multiverse. So the Everettian multiverse, as I conceive it, is a collection of worlds, it's a collection of parallel worlds, rather than a splitting tree of worlds. And that is a, an important feature of the view that dif distinguishes it from many approaches to Everettian quantum mechanics, which we perhaps will talk about. But in my kind of forest of, of parallel worlds, um, different things happen in different worlds. And we're in one of them. And contingency is a phenomenon that uh, what happens in our world is, 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 is what we call actual, but there are other worlds which are counterparts of our world and contingency is variation across those. And the reason that uh, it's useful for us to think about these other worlds is that we can't tell which world we're in just by looking at the evidence available to us. Uh, in particular, we can't tell what the future of our world is going to be like. We want to know what the future of our world is going to be like. Um, but what we can know uh, from looking at the past is what um, the probability distribution uh, over worlds that are relevantly like ours in that they have a common past is like. So if we look at enough of the past and do enough science to work out um, how to get probabilities for future events out of knowledge of the present, uh, then we can look at, look at the present and make predictions about the future. And all of that comes from uh, us finding out information about where we are in this gigantic collection of, of worlds. Um, so the core claim, uh, to come back to, is that contingency is a matter of variation across possible worlds. And to be actual, to be the actual world, is just to be the one we're in. So we're in our world, you, me, everybody listening to this is all in the same world. Um, and there are other people just like us in other worlds. And their world is actual to them, just like our world is actual to us. And there's no deep difference of kind between our world and their world. The difference between our world being actual for us and their world being actual for them is just like uh, 2020 being uh, present for us, but 1800 being present for Napoleon. Uh, or uh, Pittsburgh being here for you and Oxford being here for me. Uh, actuality becomes uh, indexical. It's a matter of where you are in reality.
um, that's your actual world. And so that's a, that's a kind of transformation of perspective of a radical kind that has been compared to uh, a kind of Copernican shift. Um, uh, when you think that the actual world is all there is and the way things actually go is uh, uh, exhaust, exhaust reality, and then you find out that you're actually just one of very many uh, and the others are prioritizing themselves. And it, it isn't, I think, though, a lonely view because we're, we're all in this world together. So we still have like within world solidarity. Uh, and I think that's where our, our cares and our, our morals come from, from in world thinking. So even though all of this broader reality exists and it constitutes the alternative possibilities for us, it's not actual, uh, actual being this indexical matter, and it's right for us to only care about the actual world. So a lot of what we believed and a lot of what we cared about is still true uh, and is still worth caring about. Um, so it's not actually all that much uh, it doesn't involve a complete upheaval of one's life and one's value system, or it needn't to, to adopt this view. It's a matter of coming to recognize uh, what possibility and necessity have always been. We just didn't realize that. They've always been quantum, but uh, until we knew quantum theory, we didn't have a hope of working that out. Wonderful. Yeah, there are so many different threads that one can pull on from that uh, very nice summary. Um, so let's sort of just perhaps situate this in the context of other theories. So, uh, can you sort of very briefly tell us David Lewis's version of modal realism, which does not talk about quantum mechanics at all, which is partially an inspiration for your theory? Absolutely. So, so my theory, I call like a version of modal realism. So, so there is modal realism of, of, of the broader kind, um, which in this context means uh, taking other possible worlds to be the same sort of thing as the actual world. So the indexical actuality, the fact that all the worlds are on a par, they're all just as concrete and real as this one, um, they're just not actual for us. That is completely in common with Lewis's theory. But the difference is in the view about what the kind of things the worlds are. So uh, Lewis thought that these uh, worlds were very diverse and various, including many that had different laws of physics at the fundamental level, which I, which I deny. Um, so there are very many fewer of my worlds, intuitively, than of Lewis's. Lewis has many, many, many worlds for which there's no Everett world, whereas there's pretty much a Lewis world for every Everett world. Um, or something uh, equivalent. Um, so I recognize very many fewer possibilities than Lewis. For Lewis, the worlds are also fundamental, whereas I endorse the approach to Everett according to which the worlds are an emergent feature of reality. So at the fundamental level, this is an important feature that you haven't mentioned, there's no contingency. 
because contingency is a matter of where you are in the multiverse and the multiverse itself is non-fundamental, contingency itself is non-fundamental. So at the level of like the, the kind of deepest reality, that which gives rise to the Everettian multiverse, um, uh, their things just are the way they are and could not have been any other way. Um, contingency is a feature which arrives at the higher level, the same way other distinctive features of reality like consciousness arise at higher levels only and aren't, we think, at the fundamental level. I don't think modality or contingency at least is there at the fundamental level. It's something that emerges um, given the structure of our quantum world at the level of a multiverse. Um, so, so, in, so that much is kind of in the David Wallace, Simon Saunders, uh, Hilary Greaves, uh, David Deutsch, kind of emergent multiverse tradition. Um, so what I'm doing is combining ideas from the emergent multiverse uh, approach to Everett in quantum mechanics with modal realism, but it's kind of a, um, uh, it's a fusion which neither of those, the proponents of those views would have been happy with. Lewis would strongly have resisted the idea that the worlds of his worlds could correspond one-to-one -one with Everett worlds. He would have thought all the Everett world, the whole Everett multiverse has to go inside a single one of his worlds. And likewise, a lot of the Everettians don't like tying their proposal for philosophy of physics to an account in broader metaphysics. They would much rather not make it a kind of hostage to fortune. They would like to be able to separate out modality, set that aside, get on with understanding physics, not be distracted by the kind of questions I want to ask. But this is where my holism that we talked about earlier comes in. I don't think you can keep those questions cleanly separated. So ironically, despite um, having a strong distaste for a priori metaphysics, I think a lot of the Everettians um, that don't uh, kind of take a stand on the connection between modality and um, uh, Everettian quantum mechanics end up presupposing a kind of a priori metaphysics of modality, which is a bad fit for their view. So I think they're kind of um, adding an unnecessary burden around their view by trying to make sense of it in the context of traditional modal metaphysics, when what it needs is to kind of be allowed its own modal metaphysics, and then quant the everything quantum mechanics just kind of can avoid many of the traditional objections to it and just altogether is a more natural total theory. Uh, obviously, people like David Wallace aren't going to agree with that. Um, Hilary Greaves uh, would strongly resist the idea of mixing metaphysic, modal metaphysics considerations with philosophy of physics considerations. Um, but I think that kind of attempt to keep the two things apart only results in uh, unexamined a priori metaphysics leaking in through the back door. Um, and so I, I think it's best to bring the metrics out in the open and explicitly aim for these kind of total packages of uh, metaphysics plus physics. And that, so that's what uh, quantum modal realism is. It's, um, it's a package deal that has some metaphysical elements and some physical elements. And the aim is to uh, find the most natural overall package deal 
for modality that include Everettian quantum mechanics. And it turns out, in my view, that that's a modal realist uh, approach. Right. So the kind of line of reasoning that you just highlighted is one of the most convincing defenses of philosophy, broadly speaking, right? Because people point out that you can try to say that I'm not interested in philosophical questions and I'm going to do my theorizing independent of philosophical assumptions. But all you're doing when you say that is just rejecting, sort of implicitly smuggling in some philosophical assumptions and not examining them. And so you, it's very hard to do any kind of inquiry without some kind of philosophical assumptions in the background. And in this case, you're saying that it's very hard to do uh, this kind of inquiry into the nature of quantum mechanics without some kind of metaphysical assumptions. Without building them into the total package of views you end up uh, presenting or, or relying on them implicitly at some stage in, in the process, yeah. So people, I think, take that point much too far. The people, uh, especially metaphysicians, are, like to make that point a lot and they like to use that to try and argue for the, the primacy of, of their view. Um, uh, so that, you know, you're going to end up making some metaphysical commitments when you do interpreted physics no matter what. So the best route is therefore to first of all work out exactly what metaphysical commitments to make. And then once you've finished metaphysics, start physics. And that makes metaphysics epistemically, epistemologically completely prior to physics. And so, but I think that would be a, a mistake as well because the idea that you can do, uh, uh, the idea that you can do physics without implicit metaphysical commitment, um, is uh, an equally bad thought is that you can do metaphysics without any like physics to uh, help triangulate you. Uh, so the correct approach is to allow both physics and metaphysics to be moving parts in your theorizing, though maybe allow the metaphysics to wiggle a bit more because it's, uh, it's kind of, its current arrangement of parts has developed less technology. Um, so the metaphysics kind of part should be moved around in whatever configuration to fit in with the physics to produce the best total view um, and not kind of do what a lot of philosophers of physics I think do, which is to kind of hold fixed some metaphysical or other philosophical commitments of the kind that they're kind of comfortable with because that's what was kind of the consensus in their area when they were doing their PhD. Um, for example, a uh, non-Lewisian possible worlds account of modality, where possible worlds are some kind of abstract entity, but let's not talk too, in too much detail about what, in case we realize that we're actually in trouble here. Um, so that sort of view is in the background. Um, and so you end up, with physics on the one hand, your kind of unchallenged metaphysics on the other, and then it's hard to make those two link up because um, they just aren't a very good fit. Whereas if you start out with the idea that the metaphysics should be whatever it takes to fit well with the physics, um, uh, then yeah, you will end up with a better total, total view. 
And in most areas of philosophy of physics, it maybe doesn't matter too much because I don't think in most areas of philosophy of physics does um, modality itself become the subject matter the way it does in philosophy of quantum mechanics. I say on, on, on my view, quantum mechanics is like the physics of modality, the physics of, of objective probability. Um, and so it's not surprising that when we're trying to understand that, we need to engage with the metaphysics of modality in a way we don't need to engage with the metaphysics of modality um, when we might be uh, talking about, I don't know, renormalization. Right. Okay, so to get back to your theory itself, so you mentioned that according to your theory, the fundamental physical theory, whatever it is, which we don't know, could be strings, could be some funny theory that we have no idea about, that theory should be taken as necessary. But yeah. how do you then account for the very fact that right now physicists are considering many different possible theories as candidates, right? And clearly they think they're possible, at least, if yeah. not actual. So, um, there's a core distinction between uh, metaphysical or physical or genuine possibility. All of those things mean much the same in my picture. Um, what really can happen is the way I like to, to gloss it um, versus an epistemic form of possibility, way things can be imagined to be, way things can be theorized to be, way things can be theoretically represented as being. And there's a link between the two, but it's not any kind of obvious one. It's like, um, broadly speaking, the epistemic possibilities are the ways that it is kind of physically possible for some agent to kind of uh, rep represent uh, the world using. So um, right, that, 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 that was garbled, but um, if it's physically possible for an agent to wonder whether P, then there's an epistemic possibility such that P, but it doesn't mean that it really can be that P, and that should be obvious as soon as we consider mathematical ignorance. As soon as we observe that um, there are epistemic possibilities uh, open to people that don't know much mass, where lots of things which are in fact theorems are false, like for all they know, those theorems are are express falsehoods. Um, so there are epistemic possibilities for them where those theorems are in fact false. Um, and those things aren't real possibilities, these mathematical impossibilities. And I just think the same goes for physics. So there are plenty of theories that physicists can put forward and consider seriously and do consider, which you know, do not describe any possible um, way that things could be. Uh, and even our best theories, uh, in a sense, they're impossible because they're not perfectly accurate in every respect, our best fundamental theories. And the true fundamental theory, which is presumably different from anything we've got at the moment, that's necessary, on my view. So like every theory that has ever been uh, explicitly formulated by a physicist is necessarily false. But that doesn't stop anybody doing physics uh, because these are all successive attempts at working towards 
uh, the true physics, which is necessarily true at the fundamental level. Um, and we can do physics that's conceived while living in a world described by the true fundamental theory. So, you know, uh, the true fundamental theory uh, is, on my view, is going to be a quantum theory. That's a prediction of the view. If quantum mechanics is false, then the whole of my view should be set aside as a, as a relic of history. Um, but uh, I'm betting that quantum theory is correct. Uh, I'm pretty confident. Um, so, sorry, I got distracted by my love for quantum theory. Uh, Don't we all? But um, yeah, the, the, the point is we can make sense of how creatures living in a world described by the true theory, a multiverse generated by the true theory, can do physics and would be very like us, constantly considering false necessarily for theories, but as they improve their theories, getting them closer to the true one. Uh, and, you know, uh, the situation is really no different from mathematics, on my view, with respect to the, our ability to consider, evaluate, and reject necessarily false theories. Um, but in the case of mathematics, the necessary, necessarily false theories are rejected on the grounds of logical contradiction, whereas here it's something different, presumably, right? Something that, that's true. And if you were to regard modality as kind of a logical matter, that would be a problem. Um, uh, but, I, but as I say, I, I regard real modality as a physical phenomenon. Um, so uh, just like we learn kind of uh, what the world is made of by doing physics, um, we learn what the real possibilities are by doing physics. And it turns out there aren't real possibilities where quantum mechanics is false, but there are real possibilities where, you know, um, uh, some nearby star uh, goes supernova tomorrow. Um, we kind of know enough about the contingency involved in galaxy formations to know that there's a real possibility there where kind of everything goes just like it has from our point of view up to the present moment, but a supernova appears tonight in the sky and worlds where it doesn't. That much is kind of, I think, kind of robust knowledge uh, that we've ob obtained of alternative possibilities. Um, so earlier you had this uh, observation that the reason why we care about alternative possibilities is at least supported or helped, up, helped on by this kind of Everettian view of possibilities in which there are all these different worlds and we're just in one of them. Uh, but is, so is the reason why we care about epistemic possibilities that are not genuine possibilities that would still need some kind of explanation, right? That your theory might not be able to provide. Yeah, so I don't think we do care directly about them. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's why we feel a uh, you know, sense of relief when we discover that an epistemic, something we you know, took to be an epistemic possibility is not in fact a real possibility. Hmm. Um, 
so I think we can kind of we care about epistemic possibilities insofar as there are representations of, of and kind of best guides towards truths about real possibilities. We don't care about them in their own right. Right. Um, I mean, for to, to, to kind of give an example, um, uh, like I'm confident that there aren't any vampires because I think I know enough about science and like the ecology of planet Earth to know that it's like very unlikely to have vampires in um and enough yeah enough about biochemistry to know that like vampire biology is implausible um it doesn't mean that i have credence zero in being attacked by a vampire tonight so i take i there i like my best guess at what the real possibilities are has no real possibility there but i haven't excluded the possibility altogether but I, I can gain great uh, solace from my confident belief that the chance is zero of that happening, even if the epistemic possibility doesn't go away completely. Um, so I think knowledge of the chances is, um, has a kind of weight that no kind of um, uh, it, yeah. It gives us a kind of assurance about the future that uh, we can't get without knowledge of the chances. Um, that's that's the functional role that it's, it's playing. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, and if I was afraid of, if I felt afraid of the dark, of ghosts or whatever, and then if I just reflected on, you know, what would be the kind of physical processes that would be required to make a ghost, and start understanding that that's actually quite impossible that there would be something that can have all these powers but still you know not really interact with you so that would kind of give me a sense of reassurance and I, I, that's what you're pointing at is that it was an epistemic possibility and then reflection on the physics leads me to think that it's not a genuine possibility and that lets me sort of relax right yeah and and similarly um you know you uh um you 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 suppose you gamble with somebody and and you lose um and then uh you learn that the the dice were rigged um you you, know, you lost it you lost um uh but the fact that the probabilities weren't what they thought you that you were kind of gives a sense of outrage like we we care about the probabilities uh, of the world, um, and uh, there are there are guides to all our actions through expected utility theory um, or or whatever um, version or um, of of every plausible like theory of formal theory of rational choice is going to give a role to estimation of objective probability. Um, I think, I mean, obviously that's not, obviously that's not uncontroversial because very little is uncontroversial. Um, but uh, I think it's kind of very clear how chance is uh, at the center of a lot of the most important decisions we make in everything from weather forecasting to economics to gambling uh to like split second 
chance judgments made while driving. Um, if there weren't if there weren't objective probabilities, uh, life would be extremely difficult. And so the the, the view that I'm I'm describing uh, use, uses objective possibilities as sorry objective probabilities as kind of the bridge between everyday life, rational choice, uh, kind of uh, uh, science informed decision making, and the underlying physics. So you have probabilities from the from the physics that ramify up through the levels to be still objective by the time they get to the level of everyday life. Um, and so ultimately, it's the pro objective probabilities in fundamental physics coming out of this measure over the space of possible worlds that is the source of all of our like well founded uh, decision making. Right. Okay. Wonderful. So this is. Uh a nice bridge to the one of the main topics I want to talk to you about, which is chance and probability in the context of um, Everettian quantum mechanics, especially as viewed through your lens. So there are several ways we can go about this, but can you sort of just tell us how you think about chance in this? Uh, in your framework, is it, you, so you mentioned the phrase, a measure over possible worlds, but this still seems some, somewhat disconnected from what we think of as chances. Yeah, I toss a coin, it, it, landed, it lands heads with such and such frequency, or I can make certain kinds of bets based on my knowledge of the chance of this coin. So how do you connect the measure over possible worlds to this more ordinary understanding of chance? Yeah. Good. Um, so, in ch chances, the multifaceted thing, and the, the chances you just mentioned are, are kind of high-level high chances. So these are chances at the level of the decidedly non-fundamental phenomena of humans making decisions, uh, gambling, and, and, and so forth. Um, but I think ultimately, the fact that there are like well-defined um, kind of uh, Accessible and useful probabilities at the level of human behavior is ultimately grounded in the probabilities at the microscopic level of the behavior of uh, the, the the physical ingredients um, and so ultimately uh, that, that is to say the view I have is a, is a form of reductionism, uh, whereby specifying the probability distribution over the micro physical histories of the world, specifying how likely each fully de maximally detailed description of physical reality is relative to every other mi ma maximally detailed description of physical reality. Um, a probability distribution over those is going to fix a probability distribution over all the higher level uh, phenomena um, which can be multiply realized by the different micro histories of the various kinds. Um, so there's kind of a two-step thing. There is, first of all, we ensure that we have a probability distribution defined over the uh, 
maximally detailed or as detailed as you can get without running into decoherence at least worlds um, and then uh, you rely on um, some broad form of physicalism uh, to argue that or probably since there is like a total probability distribution cut like a single total probability distribution covering all of the microphysical states that's going to determine probabilities for all of the combinations of those states which you might put together into a higher level fact um, so you know even though there's many micro histories in which i win this bet you can just like sum the probabilities of all those micro histories in which i win the bet to get the macro the probability of the macro fact i win the bet and so it's it's those chances attaching to the individual worlds ultimately that are in the aggregate giving rise to the chances for the higher level um properties so there's a certain kind of physicalist i mean some would say that's like a, a, a very reductionist worldview. I don't think it's particularly reductionist, um, but I, I I do think that you need to have that that if you have a complete distribution of probability at the micro level, that's got to fix everything else. So I'm not a strong emergentist in, in, in that sense. Um, anyway, uh, so then the question is kind of where did that probability distribution over micro histories come from in the first place? Answer. It's a feature of the physical world that is described um, by the uh, squared amplitude of the quantum state. Uh, and that's kind of what, what quantum mechanics tells us it is. And we need not necessarily be able to characterize that in any independent terms for that to be an adequate understanding. That's a kind of defensive thing to say. Uh, but there is, of course, a big debate about whether probability makes sense in Everett. And many people have criticized Everett, often harshly, on the grounds that it can't really make room for probabilities. And these people will be raising an eyebrow, because here I am saying that the uh, provision for probabilities is one of the biggest features in favor of uh, a worldview that incorporates Everettian quantum mechanics. Um, so there's, there's a few things going on here. One of the things is that I think the metaphysics, the, the link between the physics and the metaphysics I make, as well as like having rewards in terms of a good theory of modality, it also has rewards in terms of helping us solve and respond to problems with everything quantum mechanics itself. So in particular, I think the probability problem is much more tractable, much uh, more readily solvable if you have my link with modality in the background than if you don't. Because a big objection to probability in Everett is that people say some things like probabilities should attach to alternative possibilities. That's kind of what it is to be a probability: is to be a um, a measure over an alternative possible set over a set of alternative possibilities. And look, in Everett, these worlds—they're all equally real. They're not alternative possibilities. They're like all there together, and so there can't be meaningful probabilities uh, defined over them. And my view, of course, uh, says that uh, these worlds aren't all co-actual. They are all alternative possibilities. Kind of, they are what it is to be an alternative possibility. That's just what alternative possibilities are, the different Everett worlds. Um, and so probabilities are the kind of thing we thought they were after all. 
even though they're Everettian. So in fact, we haven't abandoned this kind of core conceptual feature of uh, probabilities. They're linked to alternative possibilities. After all, um, we've retained it. Uh, and that's why I think that my approach does better when it comes to probability problem than, than many other views. That's not to say I think that uh, probability is wholly unproblematic. Uh, for the following reason, um, there's always been a challenge. I mean, I would trace this back to like the general problem of induction. But since people have been talking about objective probability, there's always been this kind of normative challenge. Why should we care what the objective probabilities are? Why should they rationally guide us? Why should knowing that this coin is fair lead me to want to uh, you know, not bet at uneven odds on it? Um, only if the chances are like relevant to my decisions does that seem rational. So how could they be relevant to my decisions in that way? Um, and some people have said, uh, David Deutsch has said, David Wallace has said, um, that Everett is actually better off uh, with respect to this problem than other theories. Uh, because you can prove, says David Wallace and David Deutsch, that uh, and, and others, Simon Saunders has endorsed a version of this argument, um, that a rational agent in the Everettian universe will regard the quantum weights as objective probabilities. Um, that is, they're the kind of argument that, given the Everettian ontology, these uh, quantities, the, the, the branch weights, the Born rule weights, the squared amplitude, whatever you want to call them, um, uh, it is rational to behave as if they are probabilities. It's rational to treat them as probabilities in your reasoning, if you're an Everettian who knows you're living in an Everettian world. Um, and I don't think those arguments succeed, uh, broadly because they try to do too much. So they effectively try to solve the problem of induction. Uh, and I don't think that can be done. There's a lot more to say about that, and uh, we can talk about it if, if you're interested. But I think that rather than showing that the uh, branch weights are probabilities, what we can take these arguments as showing is like they are the best candidate to be probabilities. So they're probabilities if anything is. I mean, we haven't established that they are probabilities as opposed to there being just like no such thing as objective probability and rational action being impossible. But like to the extent that rational action is possible and to the extent that there's anything that plays an objective probability role, it's these. They're like the uniquely best candidates to be probabilities. Still doesn't make them probabilities, but it's uh, part of the best total theory that they are probabilities. So there's a certain amount of um, kind of uh, there's a certain, in a certain sense, it's less ambitious than what Wallace and, and, and Deutsch have tried to do. Uh, so I see, I see their kind of arguments as more like a kind of consistency check, as an argument that if we take um, the probability, these formal weights as probabilities, everything will work out just the way we expect it to with respect to things like decisions. 
I don't see them as establishing that uh, you're irrational if you live in an ever universe and you don't do that. But then I think that nothing could do that because nothing can solve the problem of, of induction, which is to show that it's rational to treat some features of the world as um, rationally constraining beliefs about the future. Right. You're not being irrational if you choose to continue to expect one particular outcome, no matter what the chances are. Um, you're theorizing badly. You're making a mistake, but that mistake isn't like a pure failure of rationality. Right. So just to sort of get a sense of what the picture is supposed to be, uh, according to your theory, so suppose I toss a coin and I say that with 50% probability is going to land heads and 50% probability is going to land tails. What that means is something like the quantum mechanical measure over those worlds in which the coin lands heads is, is one half and the quantum mechanical measure over those worlds in which the coin lands tails is one half. And however, you don't think that it is correct to say, or do you think it's correct to say that half the worlds, the number of worlds in which the coin lands heads is equal to the number of worlds in which the coin land tails, right? Like, no, I, I don't think it's correct to say that, though I think it might yet turn out that it's um, correct to say that kind of on a, on a technicality. So, um, I think we genuinely don't know enough about cosmology and fundamental uh, uh, physics, um, like Planck scale physics, um, to know uh, whether the uh, to know some like some key features of the space of Everett worlds. Um, in particular, I think it might it might yet turn out that um, there are infinitely many uh, worlds in every set. That is to say, um, uh, kind of the space of world is infinitely fine-grained. Uh, that would that something would have to change with our current understanding of decoherence. But I, I I'm not sure that there aren't cosmological developments that could change things in, in that way. Um, I'm not I'm not a physicist, but I'm I'm trying I. I I, I, I try to be cautiously open-minded about, about these sorts of things. Um, and so if um, the space of worlds is one way it might epistemically possibly turn out to be, then there would be the same number of worlds in each set, but that trivially so because there'd be an infinite number in each set. What we can't do is use like finite relative numbers to like there being like twice as many worlds in this set as that set to determine the probabilities. Um, insofar as you grain the worlds in such a way that you can ascribe num finite numbers to them, uh, what you're doing is, an, is, a, is approximate because you can fine grain your history space. This is a kind of well-known point in the literature on Everettianism. You fine grain your history space in a slightly different way. You still get effect, you still get decoherence and effective 
isolation of the world, but you get a different number of worlds in your history space. And the kind of commonly accepted view amongst Everettians uh, in response to this is that the number of worlds just doesn't have physical significance. Um, uh, there's like some indeterminacy in how many worlds. It's just kind of, people always talk about this in different ways, and it's an interesting point, but it's not even kind of a well defined feature of what's really there. Uh, to be able to determine the probabilities, let alone whether it would get the probabilities right, which it wouldn't, because uh, it would diverge from the Born rule. Um, so, so yes, it might be that we can make sense of uh, some well-defined notion of numbers of worlds. It might even be that that well-defined notion is finite, that we really can count worlds. I wouldn't want to rule that out, though I, I think David Wallace, for example, would be very skeptical of that. Um, in that situation, we would just simply have a tension between like the, the relative proportion in terms of number of worlds and the weight relative weights of the worlds. And in that situation, what my view and what I think Everettians have to say is that the quantum weights are what determine probabilities. So the way I can reconcile that is by thinking that the principle I could equally likely be in any of these worlds is just a bad principle when it's applied across different worlds. And people are misled because they think it's a good principle within this world. Um, so if I learn that like this world is made up of 10 like duplicate universes lined up in a row, I might think a priori I'm equally likely to be any, in any of those. But all of those are in like the same Everett world. And so the fact that I might think I'm equally likely to be in universe A or B or C or D or E of these like lined up uh, universes uh, doesn't tell me how I should distribute my credence about whether I'm in this Everett world or that Everett world. Because I kind of have to cross, you know, cross Everett world boundaries to get to the next Everett world. And I don't think kind of the, the indifference principles for self-location work cross world the same way they work in world. So I, I would think I can kind of still get a plausible uh, self-locating epistemology um, even without being driven to branch counting. I think a lot of people reason from a like indifferent principle about where I'm located in this world to an indifferent principle between worlds and then derive branch counting from that. And I think the mistake there is moving from indifference in my locations within this world to indifference to my possible locations across worlds. Right. That's a long story, and I, I, yeah, the book, the book goes through the long story. Yeah, this is obviously one of the biggest sticking points uh, that people have when they consider Everettian quantum mechanics, because they'll say, okay, look, you have something like a Schrodinger's cat experiment, and suppose with probability one third, the cat is given the sleeping drug and then with probability two-thirds it is not and well the superposition structure seems to suggest that there's well one world in which the cat is asleep and one world in which the cat is not asleep but what we want to say is that with probability one-third which is not the same it's not symmetrical with the case in which it's awake and i guess the point you're trying to make is Twofold. On the one hand, you're saying one way to think about it is that the sort of if what it is, so 
quote unquote, the number of worlds, if that's infinite, has uh, a measure that's twice as large as the measure of the worlds in which the cat is uh, asleep. Just as if I take a line that's twice as long as another line, even though the number of points in them is the same, it is still true that one line is longer than the other. Yeah. But you're not necessarily committed to that way of thinking about it, right? Because you don't know whether each world is sort of infinitesimally thin in the space of all yeah. possible worlds. Yeah. I, yeah, so it, it, I don't know in that sense whether it's analogous to, to the line. Um, but, um, yeah, this, the, these, these issues around probability are, are timeless with Everett. There was a um, recent debate, which I expect some uh, people listening to this may have, uh, may have seen between Sean Carroll and David Albert um, on, a, on a Harvard Zoom workshop uh, about probability in Everett. And the objections being made by David Albert um, uh he's he's formulating them ex extremely sharply but that some of the, the kind of conceptual core of the objections is uh the same sort of objection that everettians have always struggled with and i think uh, they are they are good objections um relating to how you think about probabilities concerning the future in particular and uh as I mentioned, my version of Everett has a parallel world view, not a splitting world view. And that feature very significantly helps with many of those problems relating to, I mean, I think it solves um, the problem of uh, how to make sense of uncertainty about the future in Everett. Likewise, I think uh, the different links to the metaphysics of modality I use help to solve many of the concerns people have about the conceptual role of probability being too mangled in Everett because it's been separated out from alternative possibilities, I put them back together again. <coughs> so I have this picture which uses a little bit of metaphysics here and there to uh, like kind of, yeah, kind of slots in a couple of suitable pieces of metaphysics into the, into the overall picture here and there in order to solve these problems with the, the physics. But nobody seems to like that. Uh, I, nobody um, in the debate over everything probability is mo motivated by that, unfortunately, uh, or so it often seems, because um, the Everettians think they can kind of win this dispute without the help of any metaphysics, and the metaphysics is just gonna complicate this, and they think they already have all the resources they need to answer the challenge. Whereas the objectors think that um, uh, this isn't what the Everettians are mostly endorsing, so I kind of don't need to worry about the fact that it avoids the objection. Um, so uh, uh, neither side, unfortunately, is interested in my uh, my resolution of the Everettian probability puzzle. Um, but uh, that's, that's, that's well, I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm not fully convinced, but I'm definitely sympathetic. Uh, so, okay, so one thing that you mentioned uh, throughout the discussion, which we should probably spend a little bit more time on, is this way in which you uh, separate your view from the 
sort of dominant view within Emiratian quantum mechanics, which is the idea that all the different branches are always distinct, even though we might think that there's a kind of branching going on. That is, there's one branch that splits apart into two branches. And presumably, in a case, in the kind of Schrodinger's cat situation, what you're going to say is that uh, there were always two cats in a way, or at least two cats, or two kinds of cats, or two sort of families of cat worlds. And these two families of cat worlds will, uh, after a certain time, start showing differences. But before the radioactive atom decayed, all these families of cat worlds had the same character. Whereas an ordinary Evretian would say something like, uh, these, there was exactly one kind of cat world that split up into different kinds of cat worlds. Does that roughly make sense of your distinction there? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. And uh, yeah, and this is supposed, so according to this, this has the sort of somewhat counterintuitive uh, consequence that if I say, uh, I am here now, there are actually, I don't know, infinitely many, a very large number of sort of copies of me or counterparts of me that are in every respect having exactly the same experience, living in the same sort of environment, who will in the future go on to have different experiences, but they're all sort of here now, right? Is that... Well, that no, because um, it's not just uh, you that there's multiple of, it's mm. space-time that there's a lot of. Okay. Each of these uh, versions of you, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I don't actually like this kind of terminology, but it's, it's something that people, people often say, kind of multiple versions of you. Mm. The, the way the metaphysics works on my picture, there's only one of you, there's only one of me. There are many other people, they may have names uh, that are the same name as yours. Uh, they may look the same as you, but they, they are their own person living their own life and you are fundamentally concerned about yourself and not about them. Um, and the reason why you want to find out which world you're in um, is because you want to uh, make your life go as well as possible. Uh, so you want to know about the features of your world to do that. Um, I mean, Free will is a, is a whole extra separate problem and the short answer there is I don't think it's any worse off in, in this picture than, than it already is, but um, set that aside. Uh, so these, there are many other people in other worlds, just like you, but they each of them have their own universe with their own space-time and their own galaxies, their own uh, friends and family. Um, and so, no, you're the only you're the only one there. I'm the only one here. Um, but we are we resemble other bits of reality much more than we might intuitively have expected to. Right. We, qualitatively speaking, we are not unique because, right. of course, there are going to be many worlds which diverge only long after uh, both of us are, are, are long since uh, gone. And so. Any two worlds that diverge only after that, uh, those two worlds contain 
perfect duplicates of both my life and your life in. Um, and so there are innumerable people that aren't just duplicates of me and you up till now, but will be duplicates of you and me right to the very end of their lives. So, you know, go look through the, um, uh, go look through the multiverse. You'll find a lot of not just people that look like you now, but a lot of lives that look just like yours. And in that sense, we're not unique, but I've got used to that. Um, you know, I'm unique enough around here, uh, as are we all. So um, I, I basically think that uh, most of what we thought uh, was kind of reasonable to have an attitude to the whole of reality remains reasonable, but not as an attitude to the whole of reality, as an attitude to actuality, which is pretty similar to what we thought the whole of reality was like. So our practical attitudes, our values, don't need to change at all, unless those values were for some reason tied to the deepest metaphysical facts about the nature of modality. So if, for example, uh, someone was a member of a religion uh, that worshipped um, uh, a like a modal realist religion of the Lewisian kind that worshipped a god in another possible world, they might be pretty upset to find out that on my version of modal realism, that, that the world with that god in doesn't exist. There's no quantum world like that. And so their god doesn't exist. Like that would be uh, a case in which converting to Everettianism understood my way would alter your value system. You'd have to have some pretty, pretty peculiar values to start with. Um, for people that, that that value the kind of ordinary things that are like, uh, you know, the the people and the the landscapes around them, uh, none of that needs to change, just because you adopt a much broader view of reality beyond our Everett world. Right, right. Um, I, yeah. I, I I did get off the original question there. It is a it is a peculiar feature of this of this view that it has so much proliferation of uh, duplicates of, of, of things, not just of individual people, but of whole, whole planets, whole solar systems, whole galaxies, all get duplicated a lot. Um, but, I mean, the world's a complicated place. Uh, it's pretty big. And it's more of the same sort of thing. Like, once you've kind of got used to the, like, including... Uh, in your conception of physical reality, you know, 100 trillion galaxies, you know, a few more, a lot more, just more of the same. So I, I don't really see any pressure to think the universe is small. I just uh, see pressure to think that it, it matches what we know about it. Right. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so I guess we're coming up close to the end of our time. So perhaps uh, maybe I can get in a couple more questions about this question of what we care about if this theory is right, uh, because that's something that people might be concerned about, um, even though you're trying to reassure us that you know this theory leaves everything as it is and you can go about your life without worrying about what your counterparts are doing, um, or at least. Uh, yeah. So, well, well so one, uh, one thing that I kind of liked about Everettian quantum mechanics, which your line of reasoning is sort of pushing back against a little bit, 
and even other Everettians say the same thing. So you're not sort of distinct in that way. But so, right, so suppose someone is taking a risky action, right? And they take the risky action, but it turns out fine, right? Like they're driving recklessly, but they don't crash the car. Now, ordinarily, we still want to be able to criticize that person and the person saying, well, it all worked out, so what's the big deal? You know, on a kind of Everettian view, you might say, well, look, there are other worlds in which you took that action and it ended really badly. And the sort of the weight of that world is actually pretty high. So you shouldn't have done that. Uh, but according to the kind of line that you were saying, that response won't be available to me, right? Because I would, you would just say, well, those are alternate possibilities. And uh, Professor Wilson tells me that I should only care about the actual possibility. Do you think, how do you respond to that? Um, yeah. Sorry, I, I lost the thread for a moment there. Um, so I, I, I appreciate the, the feature of the uh, interpretation of Everett that you're talking about. Uh, that say kind of risk is they kind of give a sense in which risk is intrinsically bad because if you take a risk and it and it comes off in your world still um there are you kind of cause lots of other people in other worlds to suffer and that's kind of intrinsically bad and um i guess i think that is too, that that is an i see the appeal of that but i don't think it's really a revision of our uh, like evaluative thinking that we want or need to make. Because I think we can make sense, we already could make sense of the badness of having taken a risk in lots of, um, uh, in lots of ways that don't require it to be kind of intrinsically bad. Um, So I, I guess I think there is there's something tempting there, but I just I can't uh, I can't appeal to that um, that way that way of thinking. Ultimately, I think appealing to that way of thinking is going to cause more trouble than it than, than it gains. This is the kind of thing that David Papineau has has pushed, and I think very eloquently um, in in some of his work. And um, there's a kind of there's a kind of two pronged thing. There's a kind of arguments that. Everettians are kind of just as well off as anybody else when it comes to making sense of objective probability and, and why we should make decisions in accordance with the objective probabilities and arguments that they're better off. And this, the thing you bring up is, is a kind of, is, a, is, is of that latter kind. It's an argument that Everettians actually can make better sense of our practice with chance. Um, and, uh, I mean, I mean, luck is a very puzzling thing already. We already have like legal systems whereby um, it isn't, even though you might think it should be, uh, considered equally morally bad to take a risk and kill somebody versus take a risk and not kill somebody. Um, we do regard 
the person that takes the risk but gets lucky as having done something less bad in some like all things considered sense than someone that takes the risk that comes off badly from this is a so-called problem of moral luck some people will respond by saying uh we should just re re, re kind of reorganize our entire system of evaluating so that it's about the kind of action given what you reasonably believed that is the sort it's not the consequences like having a worse consequence doesn't make the action worse doesn't make you more blameworthy doesn't mean you should be punished more so we should punish everybody that drives dangerously just as much as we punish people that cause death by dangerous driving or at the moment those two things are very differently punished um, and my sense is that morality is extremely complicated and the correct attitude to take towards people that uh, kind of knowingly endanger um, other people or take unnecessary risks with other people um, is complicated too. And yeah, this is this is not a very satisfying answer. But what I'm what I'm uh, gesturing towards is an account of um, the badness of having taken a risk and it comes off badly. Uh, that isn't because you've kind of harmed people in other worlds, uh, but because of what um, uh, it, it shows about the actual world, what would happen if you were to do that again. Um, so and what it kind of says about your dispositions and your character in the actual world. Um, uh, and also, humans being humans we are we and people affected might uh be psychologically affected by those things and trust be breached um like there's a lot of um there's a lot of complexity there that i think provides resources to to do without that uh, that thought right there it is so that was a, that was a long-winded answer and as usual with long-winded answers it's because i'm not entirely happy with what i have to say uh, on the subject. Um, so I guess that is, it, it is maybe uh, something I would count as the cost of my view compared to other Everettianisms that it gives up that nice, nice cool thing. But I think it ultimately it's, uh, it's worth, it's worth sacrifice. Right, right. Yeah, so according to your view, we should, there are all these different alternate possible worlds, but we should only care about them actual world even though the other worlds are real right we so, want to learn about the other worlds but we want to use we want to learn about them because that enables us to in our actions maximize things being the way we want within the actual world because the actual world is the locus of our values um right. and it's like a kind of hardcore version of the way we care about our friends and family more than our people we don't know we care about people we don't know on earth more than we care about like duplicates of those people in distant galaxies and i want to say we care more again about those people in distant galaxies than we care about those in in another world um except this time in a, a matter of degree not merely of kind um there's a, there's a lot to there's a lot to argue about here we have these sorts of moral objections against any sort of view that makes um uh reality as a whole non-contingent mm. 
people think, what's the point of doing anything if the totality of reality it will be the same whatever I do? And the answer is, you know, the proper locus of concern for you, where uh, what it is kind of appropriate for world-bound creatures to care about is world-bound events. Um, that's just our lot in life. We're in a world, we're stuck in it, we're, we're all in it together. So like the best sort of ethic we can achieve is a kind of worldwide solidarity. Ever at worldwide, that is. Okay, wonderful. So closing question, uh, what are some questions and research directions that you are particularly excited about? Well, I mean... Related to our conversation. Yeah. I, I'll say briefly what I'm what I'm doing at the moment, which is kind of a next big project after this 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 book. So um, this is having having uh, been in production from when I was an undergrad and first came up with the idea. Like 19 years later, it, it finally exists, and so I can do another project. I hope this next one won't take 19 years. <laughs> I have a um, I have I have a, a a team funded by the EU. Um, uh, at the moment at the University of Birmingham called FrameFiz and we're working on uh, the varieties of explanation in physics and in particular on uh, non-causal and metaphysical explanations in physics. Uh, so the aim is, one, one way of putting it is to explain where explanatory directionality comes from in physics. That would be a, a nice thing to know. Uh, the directedness of, a, of an explanation in fundamental physics. Um, so I, I'm thinking about those sorts of things and uh, enjoying working with my team. We're all working on uh, you know, aspects of that sort of thing, um, including philosophy of statistical mechanics uh, and philosophy of quantum theory and EPR and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but in terms of things that are happening in philosophy of physics right now, in, in, in physics right now, um, you can hardly go through, I think, uh, like a serious discussion of uh, the metaphysics of physics without mentioning quantum gravity sooner or later. Um, nearly, nearly every philosophy of physics talk you go to these days, uh, it would make sense to put your hand up and say effectively, but what about how does quantum gravity bear on this? Because it bears on nearly everything. Um, and given that we have, uh, you know, of, you know, if gravitational wave astronomy takes off and becomes a big thing, that might give new cosmological uh, lines of inquiry that might bear on on a lot of these questions. So, I would really love to know about um, uh, uh, large-scale facts about the universe. Um, uh, finite or infinite information content, those sorts of questions. Um, and that, that is just something that uh, you know, physicists are lucky enough to be working on that stuff and philosophers are lucky enough to be able to follow the, the physics at the cutting edge um, uh, will be able to have a field day with just because it like bears on so much else in philosophy of physics um, one way or another. And in some ways, it feels like some traditional areas of philosophy of physics, like philosophy of space-time, kind of they're kind of on pause until we get some, like some some real progress in in quantum gravity to to report. Um, so that's that's a big uh, area of research. 
I'm really interested by the, uh, I know not enough about this to work on it myself, but I'm really interested in um, uh, an area that uh, a person from my project, Katie Robertson, is working on the moment, on at the moment, the intersection of uh, like quantum mechanics, uh, statistical physics and information theory. Um, and I think there's, and this connects up with the question about applicability of mathematics we were working out earlier on, talking about earlier. So broadly speaking, um, I'll come back to that question of the question of the applicability of mathematics. That is the question that I, I love to think about the most. And so um, I kind of, I like uh, research agendas and directions that, that bear on that question. And I think this, this modal metaphysics uh, approach does, but I also think these um, questions of, uh, of cosmology and of uh, connections to computation and statistical physics and applied mathematics are also uh, really relevant to that, that question of the applicability of mathematics, which is, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the greatest of all metaphysical problems, why not? Um, and we still haven't solved it, and it's, it's fun to think about. Al Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, that's been fun.